0: All right, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning, I want to bring the Word of God to you from Hebrews chapter 12. And the title of the message, if you could just flash the slides up, please. Uh You want to just go through the text? Let's get the slides up first title of the message is The Discipline of God. And I think this is uh, a difficult message on a, a couple levels. One is that it's not a pleasant topic. And because we're Americans, when the topic is not pleasant, something inside of us deep down instinctively rejects it, as I'll deal with that later. We Americans really don't like unpleasant things or bad news or hard subjects. And so We have done a very good job of cutting a lot of that stuff out of our world, out of our lives, whenever we can control it. And so these kinds of sermons are tough because discipline isn't a feel-good thing. But it's also difficult because I think discipline is something that most of us really misunderstand. If I say to you, God disciplines us, what kind of ideas are flying through your head right now before I preach? What concept do you carry of the discipline of God for his children. And I'll bet you that the way you think about God's discipline has a lot to do with the way that your earthly mother and father disciplined you. Even though you promised yourself you would never be like them, you're pretty much like them. Okay? I'm sorry, but the older I get, the more I realize it's very difficult to escape the gravitational pull of your parents. In many, many ways, you will discipline the way you are disciplined. And so, in fact, the way you think of God's discipline probably has a lot to do with the way that if you're a parent, you discipline your own children. If you're not married, if you don't have children yet, I promise you that you will probably discipline your children the way that you think God disciplines you and the way that you think your parents disciplined you. And so we, I want to make sure that we have the right understanding of what the discipline of God actually means. And if we could flash back to the text, I'm going to read through the passage for you one time all the way through, and then we're going we're to walk through the passage verse by verse, okay? <clears throat> so we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, since we are surrounded... Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. and You have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. That's the word of God from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. I want to do a quick survey with you. If you can go back to the sermon slides. Raise your hand if you have corrected vision. If you need glasses or contact lenses. So if you take off your glasses, if you lose them or your contact pops out. This is probably how you see the world, right? It's really frustrating, and almost every day in my house, you'll hear me shout this, where are my glasses? Has anyone seen my glasses? I don't know what it is about my brain, but I put down my glasses and immediately delete the file that reminds me where it is, and I can never find my glasses, and without them, all of you look attractive, okay? I mean, that's just the fact of the matter is, without my glasses, I can't see anything, I once had to drive home from a strange place without my glasses and I got so many people angry because I'm just driving like two miles an hour looking at the road signs. I even once got out of my car to walk up to a sign. Yeah, that's the street I got to turn on. It was a mess. It's a hard thing to be nearsighted. And if you need glasses, the vast majority of those with corrective vision have what we call myopia, nearsightedness, which means you can see things close up but the things farther away are very fuzzy, and that creates immediately a feeling of anxiety in you, doesn't it? I mean, it's easy; it's, it's, you can deal with seeing things close to you, but when you look up and you can't see anything further out, it makes you nervous. It creates tension. And I think for a lot of people, that's the way our lives feel, especially when we're suffering, when trouble visits our lives. Something about suffering and hardship creates nearsightedness in the human heart. We begin to fixate immediately on what's right in front of us, but what lies ahead and what lies behind are becoming blurrier and blurrier so that we, in fact, forget all the past faithfulness of God. And we say, we throw our hands up in the air and we say, I have no idea what the future holds. I'm scared and I feel like I can't walk forward with any confidence. Now, this is especially true when suffering visits your life suddenly, when it's something you never expected, when you're just minding your own business and all of a sudden you get a nasty email from somebody or a friend suddenly becomes very cold towards you and you could tell something's changed and you're like, what's going on? Or maybe you visit the doctor and you're, you're just thinking, I just got a sniffle and all of a sudden you get devastating news from your doctor. It's hard to deal with life When suffering and hardship come upon you very suddenly and you've had no time to prepare yourself. Now, it's one thing when our suffering is the result of our own foolishness, we kind of expect that to come. When you rob a bank and you accidentally leave your wallet at the bank, you're sitting at home waiting for the police to come collect you, right? When you smoke four packs a day, you're sort of waiting for the doctor to tell you you have a lung tumor, See, when you do certain things that are self-destructive, then suffering is sort of the other shoe that's going to drop any day. And you can expect that to happen. When you spend all day long at the office and you don't ever take your wife out on a date night, you're going to expect some cold shoulders and some long nights and some big arguments. So when that kind of suffering hits us, we've been prepping for it for a long time, and it's a little easier to take. But every now and then, God will permit and introduce into your life a kind of suffering and hardship that will strike you like a sudden winter storm. There will be no warning. You might even be in a really good mood, riding a high wave, and all of a sudden, something will happen that will just be like a punch in your face. It will leave you dizzy, reeling. You don't understand how to make sense of it. And when that kind of suffering and hardship visits you, especially when you have done nothing to really contribute to it, when you've done everything right, you've tried to be innocent and morally upright, and all of a sudden, here this comes. Maybe you, you're always eating right, you're jogging, and suddenly you're the one. Like my dad, constantly exercising, watching what he eats. He's the most unhappy diner, because my mom always feeds him things like lecithin and wheat germ powder. and So he's been eating healthy all his life, and two years ago, he gets a heart attack. It makes no sense. When you're doing everything right and all of a sudden the calamity falls on you, there's this indignation that rises up and you begin to ask a lot of harsh questions of yourself and of God because the truth is it stops making sense at that point. Isn't that true? You start asking yourself, where did this come from? How is this fair? And how am I supposed to find any kind of redemptive meaning or purpose in this kind of suffering? It's just not fair. Now, the book of Hebrews is written to people who are going through just this kind of suffering. They had newly become Christians. They were formerly Jewish people who had become Christians, but there was so much persecution, so many people taking advantage of them and attacking them, so that they were now very discouraged in their new faith. And they were tempted to just give up. Have you ever been under such prolonged hardship? that at one point you just woke up and said, you know what, I think I'm done. I just can't take it anymore. I've tried to push and hold out as long as I could, but I've reached my expiration date, and I don't think I can take any more of this. That's where the readers of this letter were when the author of this book wrote these words to them. He wrote them as a word of correction and encouragement to say, don't you dare give up now. There is always hope. Don't you dare give up. Stand up and keep walking because our God will prevail. That's the entire point of this. And the entire message of Hebrews crescendos here in chapter 12, where he gives them an answer to the question they've been asking. Hey, what am I supposed to make of this suffering? How am I supposed to understand this to explain it to myself and to my family? What could God possibly be doing Through these attacks and this hardship. Now, before we continue further, the writer of the book of Hebrews calls this kind of suffering, this kind of innocent, sudden suffering, the discipline of God. And so I wanna make sure we're defining our words correctly. And so I wanna just review some basic terms with you that contain the word discipline to make sure we're thinking the right things. There's basic human discipline, which is like growing up and becoming an adult, all right? It's like working hard, keeping your promises, not sleeping in until 2 p.m. and staying up till 4 a.m. watching videos and, you know, the entire season of 24 in one sitting or something like that. It's learning to be a basically responsible adult human being, to manage your money, keep your promises, be self-controlled. And we all need that, and God wants that for us. And so there is basic human discipline, and then following that, there are the spiritual disciplines. Those regular practices, which if we do them without fail, will actually help us grow spiritually. And without those spiritual disciplines, you will be in a tailspin forever wondering why Christian life doesn't feel exciting and life-giving. Those are important, but those are not the disciplines that we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 12. What we're talking about in Hebrews chapter 12 is called the discipline of God. It is that calamity that befalls people, and you can't point to a reason why it's happening. You can't say, well, this is happening because I did this. It is just that kind of calamity which God permits and even introduces into our lives because his goal through it is to instruct and to correct and to transform us. It's the way that we discipline our children when we see that something they're trending towards is going to, really be bad for them in life we try to correct them it's not punishment oriented it's not punitive but it is corrective it is what a loving parent does for their children when they when you realize if i leave that kid alone in this habit it's going to sink them later in life i want them to grow up to enjoy some of the fruits of the character i've learned to embrace and so i want to impart the best of me to my children Many parents in this room learn the value of hard work, and so we know that if we love our children, we won't promote laziness, because laziness is comfortable. Can I get an amen? Isn't laziness so comfortable? Good God. Some mornings, you're in your bed, and that comforter's sore, and you're just like, I just want to pretend I'm sick, and I just want to lay here all day and curl up with my iPad and read blogs and eat yummy, fattening foods and just... Isn't laziness comfortable? And if we're left alone and we get permission, we would be lazy every last one of us every day of our lives, wouldn't we? Thank you. Diligence and discipline are not natural. They are imparted to us and given value by someone who loved us enough to say that you cannot give in to your nature. You must conquer it. And that's what our Heavenly Father is doing for us. And he knows that that kind of changing of our hearts and characters don't always come by happy times and good things. Some of the most important parts of our character are formed under duress and hardship. We all know that that's true. Go to the gym and lift air weights someday. Just go, (sighs) (sighs) one last set. And then come home and, and look in the mirror and see if your muscles are growing. If you don't have resistance, you're just pretending, all right? You're just going through the motions. Without the weight on the other end of that arm, you are fooling yourself and nothing will happen. And so this is the truth that we all understand. But when it's happening to us spiritually, we reject it, don't we? Because pain doesn't feel good. We don't like hard things, but it's necessary to produce in us who we're supposed to become. We know that primarily this kind of discipline of God will come to us through the opposition of sinful people. People who in that moment of challenging and attacking us are not in the grips of God. They may be Christians who are wandering from God, disobeying him, or they may be people who have no time in in their lives for God, and they are coming after you, man. And for whatever reason, you've tried to do everything right, and they are attacking you, accusing you, slandering you, mistreating you, cheating you, betraying you. You've had that experience before, and at every level, you can objectively say, I think I'm innocent here. I don't know, and this is the counseling I, I do, right? So I'll talk to people, and here's the: I know it's happening, that God is disciplining this person in this way, because the one repeated mantra is, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know where this is coming from. I'm perplexed because I didn't cause this, and yet it's happening to me. And as an American, I have no category to file this away. I'm looking for the file drawer to put this, and I don't know where to put it. Because as an American, it just makes my head steam. I didn't make this happen, and yet it's happening to me. How do I understand this? Now you'll get the answer. You'll never have to say to me or anyone else, I don't know why this is happening to me. It's happening to you because somehow through this hardship, the holiness and character of God is being shaved and whittled and formed in you. And without this trial, you would never fully master or, or, or take upon yourself this change that needs to happen. How many of you grew really patient by never waiting for anything? Oh, gosh, I live in an instant world, constantly immediate gratification, and so I've learned to be much more patient. Baloney! You will never learn patience unless you are forced to wait outside of your control to make it happen faster. That's why we push the elevator button like this, as if it's like a video game where the faster you push it, the thing runs faster. It's silliness, but that's our nature. We can't stand that I can't make it happen faster. But you will never learn patience unless you are made to wait against your will. Isn't that the way it works? And so the next time you're tempted to go, why is this happening to me? Why is this person stretching my ability to forgive and be gracious? And the simple answer is because you need to learn God is shaping you a deeper grace and a deeper spirit of forgiveness. That's why this is happening to you. Because there is something of God's holiness that he wants to do in you that cannot happen unless this hardship is experienced. Are you with me? Now, I couldn't come up with a clever way to make any kind of outline, so I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. I'm going to give you a running commentary on the text. Is that okay with you? That way, you're not even sure when it's going to be done, and it'll be over before you know it. I think that's a good strategy. So one of, the, one of the things that I want to highlight, it's not really a point so much as I'm going to park myself on certain key phrases. And what the first of those phrases is that life is a race. Okay, Life is a race. By the way, I'm not getting anything on the confidence monitor, guys. I, it's black. Can you uh, kind of jiggle it or something? I'm not sure what happened, but... Um, life is a race. Listen to what it says in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded... By such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Do you know what the Greek word for race is? It's agon, from which we get the English word agony. (laughs) That's a little weird, isn't it? That the word for race that you hear all the time in the New Testament is agony. And that really speaks to what it is. Life is not a pleasant Sunday jog, and that's the way I think we try to conceive of it because we live in the safest, most prosperous country in the world, and most of us live in some of the safest and most prosperous areas of the world. And so in our minds, life as a race should be this. Hey, how you doing? This 5K is awesome, and we're raising money for a good cause. High five, high five, yeah. That's what we think life should be. But Tell me. Has life proven to turn out that way for you? Now, if you're 15, you're like, yeah, why not, right? Totally, that's how it should be. If you're older than 30, you've been disabused of that fallacy permanently, haven't you? If you're older than 30, you've lost all that glowing optimism about how life's going to treat you so well and everything's going to work out for you. You'll graduate college and they'll give you a $150,000 a year job. Come on. By the age of 30, you know that life is agony so much of the time. It's a race where you're called to compete in a way such as to win, and yet everything seems to be stacked against you to keep running. That's why it says, let us run with perseverance, because the writer of Hebrews knows that the greatest temptation we will wrestle with all our lives is a temptation to quit, to give up. You'll face a lot of temptations, but the one temptation that will stay with you over and over is the temptation to wave the white flag and go, that's it, I'm done. And our American culture has given us a vocabulary for this. You know, this phrase, that's it, I'm done. I am so done. That's a phrase that's really gained prominence in the last five years, hasn't it? And it carries with it a certain emotional flavor that all of us immediately recognize. It's saying no one can talk me out of it. I have tried as much as I'm going to try. And you can't make me try anymore. You pushed me too far, buddy. You thought I was going to sit here and be patient forever. But that's it. This is my final act of defiance. I'm done. I'm done. Some people storm out of their boss's office, out of their living room, out of their bedroom. And they never come back. This is the temptation you will wrestle against all your life because life will make you want to quit and it will make you want to quit primarily on your faith because of all the things in your life, your faith is the least tangible so much of the time money right there for you. Family, right there for you. Your house, your car, tangible things right there. You can touch them. You can sit in your car in your garage and stroke the Corinthian leather, and it reassures you, something is real in my life. But your faith, it seems to elude you on the days when you need it most, and you will be sorely tempted to quit. I used to think as a young Christian, the goal of the Christian life is to keep practicing, and if it's like bowling, someday I'm going to bowl a 300. And after that day, I'm going to bowl mainly 280s and 290s. And if I'm really good, that's what I'm going to look like when I die. I no longer think that way. In fact, I think when I was younger, I bowled in the 200s. These days, I feel like I'm bowling in the 160s. In real life and in spiritual life, I'm bowling lower and lower. And here's what I'm learning. That God's not that concerned just about the score, but the fact that I never stop bowling. That I never give up. That even after the worst game of my life, tomorrow I'm back at the lanes going, here we go. Let's give it another try. Have you ever been bowling with friends in your first game? Your score stunk so bad, like it was like 32, and you had bumpers, <laughs> right? And you're like, you know what? Actually, guys, I don't feel like playing the second game. And everyone's like, oh, come on. You're like, yeah, you know, I just, it's too humiliating. I, I don't even, I'm not even having fun. I'm just going to go sit down and eat some fries. <laughs> have you ever been that person? Some of you have, right? That's what life makes us feel like, is, look, I just screwed up so badly, I just want to quit. And so the writer of Hebrews says, if life is an agonizing race, the one thing you must do is persevere. The race has been marked out for each of us. You can't just not run. You're going to run a race somewhere, because every day you're moving headlong in some direction. You can't opt out of racing. And so he says, don't be misguided, run with perseverance, do not ever quit, do not ever give up. Now, even when you're doing everything right, life is pretty challenging. But he says, look, why would you become your own worst enemy by taking on unnecessary hindrances? Have you ever seen these fools who run marathons in big bear suits and stuff like that? Seriously, why do you do that? The old, olden-day ancient athletes ran naked. I don't really recommend that, but they ran naked for a reason. You're free, baby. There's nothing jamming you up, chafing, making you bleed through irritation. It's the freest way to run. You see these people in these big Halloween costumes running marathons, and you just go, you know, that's the wrong way to run a marathon. Either you're just showing off because you're so good at running that you've got to add hindrances, or you're just dumb as a box of rocks because when you're running that great a race... You want to be as free of hindrances. What are some of the things that hinder us? Idols, relationships, beliefs, attitudes, habits. Things that weigh us down, that have nothing to do with what God's doing in our lives, that create dead weight on us, that we it's just like an encumbrance when you're trying to run. It hurts you from running. And he says, why would you make it harder for yourself by clinging to these foolish and unnecessary accoutrements that weigh you down, Shed those things off. I've seen it happen in people's lives where they've been weighed down by a a foolish belief. They believed all their lives this is the way it works. And then suddenly the, the truth of God dawns on them and they go, oh my goodness. I've been living a lie all my life and finally I'm set free. And you see the look in their eyes as the lightness of spirit, the freedom comes. And now they're really running, baby. It's like someone told them, What? I don't have to carry these 25-pound dumbbells the whole time I'm running? And they let go, and they feel like they could fly. Some of you need to shed your hindrances. But he says, there's also another thing that gives drag in the race, and that's the sin that entangles you. It's hard enough battling against life itself. But you know that what really knocks the wind out of you is when you screw up, when you've betrayed God and other people, when the guilt of what you've done without anyone else pointing a finger at you, you know you have really violated your relationship. The way that you, you fought with your wife or your husband was totally out of, it's out of line. You said things, you did things that you should never have done, and you're sitting in your room crying and filled with regret, and you think, gosh, it's hard enough just living life. I'm not helping myself at all, screwing up like this every sin I knowingly commit creates more drag and entanglement when I'm supposed to be able to run. And so here's his, his, his thing. He's saying we have to learn that life is an agonizing race and the goal is to keep running and there are things that hold us back and the discipline of God is meant to help us be freed of these things. To experience life the way it's supposed to feel to lay claim to the promises of Scripture and fully experience what it means to live in Christ. Lots of people go to church, and church is a prison for them. They're too superstitious to stop coming, but the whole time they sit there, there's no joy in it. That's not Christianity, folks. Real Christianity is that every day you understand the meaning and the worth of the kingdom you found. You experience it the way it's supposed to feel. And so we need to throw off all those things that hinder us. One of the primary ways we do that is by fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. Now look what it says. We're already surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. If you read chapter 11 of Hebrews, and Pastor Jared's going to preach on Hebrews 11 in the near future. At the end of the the 11th chapter of Hebrews, you see this long list of terrible prices that God's people have had to pay for their faith. One of them just haunts me to this day. Ever since I read it as a young kid, it's bothered me. And it says, some of them were sawn in two. Oh. I mean, not just hacked. I mean, just slowly. just. Uh. And some of these people experienced this. And to the end, what it says is these people, without even having the benefit of seeing Jesus, the ultimate promise fulfilled, they held out. They continue to trust and wait in God. They had faith that held them through all the way to that bitter end. He says, those people, having finished the race well, with a faith intact, now stand as a crowd of witnesses. So that every time you're discouraged and your faith is flagging, you say, look, I look at those people and here's what I'm meant to learn from them. That even when things get really rough, it is possible by faith to make it to the end. It is a lie for me to say, no, I'm sorry, my situation is unique. My situation is so difficult. Faith is not enough. Don't give me your Bible verses, Pastor Dave. Don't, don't give me your, I'll pray for you's. Just have faith. Hang on there, brother or sister. Those are empty words. The truth is my situation is too much. There's no medicine that will fix this. I'm giving up because faith is not enough. Satan wants you to believe that all the time. He wants you to believe it because then you'll give up. But all the witnesses who came before us stand as a reminder. Faith is powerful stuff. In fact, in verse four, I didn't print it out in the slides, but it says in your struggle against sin, you have not yet fought to the point of shedding your own blood. What he's saying is you guys have a lot of enemies, you Hebrews, but none of you have been martyred yet. How ominous. Yet. (laughs) You might yet, but you haven't yet. But there are people who were sawn into two pieces. You tell me if your challenge is worse than that. Because if it is, then yeah, I'll agree with you. Faith is not strong enough for your situation. Give up. But what he's saying is when you look at these witnesses and you know that some of them to the end of their earthly life, faith brought them through, then you can at least bank on this. Even though I don't feel it right now, even though I don't believe it right now, I cannot say it is a true statement that faith is not enough. Because the world and its human history is filled with testimonies that faith can be enough. It has been enough. And so that's why we have this great cloud of witnesses to stand forever in the historical record while we're going, oh, faith is not enough. And they're going, come on. Yes, it is. It was for us. It can be for you. And then he says, now, that cloud of witnesses is great. But what will get you to run the race even better is Jesus Christ himself. Because he doesn't just win the race like one of us. He won it in a way that we never could. He is, in fact, the author and the perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? That means faith doesn't come from having positive thinking. Faith doesn't come from being morally upright and expecting that God owes you payback. Faith is always rooted in the person of Jesus Christ. You can't make meaning of the word faith without attaching it to what Jesus has done. You don't have faith in a better future. You have faith in Jesus. Do you understand how that works? So that any time you're struggling to have faith, I can't tell you, look, I know that that person's accusing you and lying about you and attacking you for no reason. Have faith that someday they'll stop. I can't tell you that because that person may never stop. They may attack you until they kill you. But what I can tell you is have faith that what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross is strong enough to get you through this, even if it costs you your life. That you can have faith in Jesus, even if you have lost your faith in everything else. It's important that we root our faith to what Jesus has done because otherwise you will take that burden and responsibility and put it right back on yourself. You guys know who this is? We're not going to see much of him anymore this year. Why is that? He's not even wearing a basketball uniform anymore. When does Scalabrini take the floor? Tell me. He takes the floor when he can't break anything, when he cannot, through his performance, good or bad, make any difference in the outcome of the game. Isn't that true? Scalabrini's got to be the most humble guy in the NBA because he only plays when when the game is so easily and certainly won that it doesn't matter how crappy he plays, you can't lose the game for us. Get in there and do your worst. Have fun. Cheer up the crowd. Take a three-pointer. Drive to the hoop. It doesn't matter. You can't break this win because we're already up by 20 with 30 seconds left. Get in there and do your best. Now, do you realize that spiritually speaking, every last one of us in here is Scalabrini's backup? You might think you're going to make some difference in whether the battle is won or lost. What foolishness. Do you think with Scalabrini's pulling up for three, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make all the difference. I'm going to be the and He's never going to be the MVP. He's never going to be the MVP. Because when he shoots, he's only celebrating and living off the coattails of a sure victory that someone else has given him. Do you understand how it works? This is you. That's why we, I think, even non-Christians love Scalabrini. Somehow, supernaturally, the Holy Spirit has told them, that's us. We play with zeal, knowing that we can't break or win anything but we're free to play because someone won for us. That's where faith comes from. Faith comes from a victory already assured so that by my performance, I don't have to swing back and forth from despair to joy, but I can live every day knowing that my efforts matter because his efforts mattered. I hope that that's clear for you, that for the rest of your life, this picture of Scalabrini as your spiritual identity will follow you all your days. Let me also give you another thing that I see in here. See, discipline is hardship designed to help us shed off our encumbrances and entanglements. Discipline of the Lord is hardship designed to shape something in us like a sharp blade whittling away at the rough edges, like rough sandpaper sanding down what is rough. Discipline of God is never easy. It's never pleasant at the time. But it is never a sign of God's anger or displeasure toward us. The discipline of God is never punitive. That's why it surprises me when God is disciplining people and they are innocent in the affair that they feel so much disgruntlement in the issue. Look, if you're innocent and you're still going through hardship, don't ruin your day over it. Rejoice over the fact that I'm at least not contributing to my own guilt. I'm not responsible for this. This hardship is because God is attempting now to pull away all the small scabbles. He's taken out the big knife. He wants to do some surgery on me. He's trying to do something which takes heavy weaponry. He shot at the tank of your hardened heart with small arms. And you're like, no, nah, that's not going to work. I'm still going to be unforgiving. I'm still going to be woe is me, self-centered, materialistic, greedy, impatient. I'm going to be all those things. Go ahead and shoot at me with your little .22 caliber handgun God. And he goes, all right, that's not working. Pull up the tank aim it at this fool and shoot because nothing else is going to change that part of his heart. And unless I turn up the heat, he's going to stay the same. So when you examine your life and you go, wow, I'm totally innocent, but life sucks right now. Thank God something's happening. Something's supposed to change in me. I'm supposed to be morphing. And if I fight it now, if I waste this opportunity spiraling in self-pity... He's going to have to just do it again later. You know, I sat in an MRI machine once, and I didn't sit still. <laughs> I have a hard time sitting still, okay? And after 30 minutes, the tech goes, I know I messed up. She goes, okay, we got to do series two, three, and four again because you're moving. See, here's the thing. If you don't endure it the first time, He's not just going to go, forget it. I don't care about him anymore. God never says like us, I'm done. He goes, I'm not done yet. You don't like the, I got a bigger cannon. You want to go? Let's go. I can't let go of you. God won't just give up on you. He's going to come after you hard. And if you don't let him do that work, he will just have to keep pulling out bigger guns until you submit to him. It's a sign of love that he has such relentless commitment to you. How many of you have ever been sorely tempted to discipline someone else's kids? How many of you have you know, been tempted to discipline my kids? Yeah, that's right. You know, I've been tempted to discipline some of your kids too. And when no one's looking, I secretly pinch them, all right? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, just, I'm mostly kidding. So <clears throat> but even though I see someone else's kids, I'm like, oh, Lord, that kid's a mess. I might roll my eyes. I might mutter some judgmental phrase under my breath, but that's where it ends. I'm like, what am I going to do? Am I going to take a day off of work, sit with you tomorrow, and and bring you through the paces? Am I going to invest time and energy disciplining and and raising you? No, because you're someone else's kid. You're not my problem. You're not my responsibility. But my kids, the ones that belong to me, both by blood and by extended family, that is my responsibility. When God disciplines us, it's not a sign of disfavor or rejection. It's a sign of love. It is not easy disciplining a child. Who needs all that drama? And as the children get older, it gets worse, man. You think it's hard disciplining an 8-year-old? Try disciplining a 15-year-old. They know how to talk. They know how to argue. They're evil. (laughs) And as they get older... You have to spend more time, because you can't just spank him and send him to the room. You gotta shape God's heart in them. You gotta help them understand why what you say is right. Do you know that when I do that for my children, when I leave the office early to deal with a situation at home, when my wife says, "Can you please come home?" I, I, I can't. You gotta come home. I can't talk to this kid anymore. And when I leave the office, it is not easy for me to do that. I'm in the zone. I'm working hard. And I go, oh, Lord, i got to drop everything to go take care of the fire at home. But when I do that, why do I do it? Is it because I love spanking people? Is it because I'm like, boring afternoon. I'm going to go and kick some butt, man. I'm going to open up a can on those kids. I do it because I'm their daddy. And I do it because somebody, they're going to bear my name, and I love them, and I want them to have a good life. And so I take the time to raise them right. It's a sign of love that I discipline my children. Don't you know that God only disciplines the ones he loves? He doesn't discipline Satan's children. He disciplines his own. And when you're being disciplined, and again, remember, discipline is hardship when you're innocent. Hardship because you need to be corrected and formed to be like Christ and share in his holiness. When you're tempted to go, why is this happening? Remember this, it's happening to you because God loves you enough to make sure you learn what you're supposed to learn here and become who you're supposed to become. It says that God, when he does this, is treating you as his sons and daughters he's doing it because his every thought every moment for you is always love you know growing up all of us knew some kids in our high school who seemed to have all the freedom in the world Do you remember those kids you know those are kids who said to me in a mocking tone at the party dude just getting late it's like 11 30 i gotta get, get home before midnight They're like, you got to go home. You got to go home to mommy. Is she going to put on your footy pajamas and tuck you in? I'm like, jerks. What, you get to stay out? My parents don't care what time we come home. We're going to probably go home like maybe when the sun comes up. Party! And I'm like, I'm so uncool. I envy them. They had so much freedom. What's interesting is I've run into some of those same people years later when the crazy, weird, skewed, distorted reality of high school is done and you become human again and you understand how life really works, and I ask them, you know, I got to tell you honestly, when we were in high school, I envied you. Your parents didn't care if you came home reeking of alcohol. Your parents didn't care who you slept with. Your parents didn't care what you watched on television. They had all those bad cable channels and no parental locks. It was unbelievable. You could do anything you wanted. You stole money from your mother's purse, never got in trouble. You rolled in at dawn, never got yelled at. I envied you so much. And you know what they say to me? (laughs) That's funny, because I envied you. You at least had someone who gave a darn if you showed up at night. When you're acting like a complete jerk, somebody told you that's not okay. No one ever told me that I'm turning into a terrible human being that you cannot find your way to a good life by having no limits. Today, I've passed at my young age through alcoholism, drug addiction, two divorces. I don't know where my children are. I'm your age and my life's a mess because nobody ever disciplined me. I was a functioning orphan. What you envied as limitless freedom was basically not having a mother or father I raised myself, and the truth is, I did a really bad job of it. You envied my freedom. I envied the fact that somebody turned you into a human being. And today, you've got a job you love, a wife that you adore, kids who are living their lives right. You don't have debt collectors hounding you. You don't have needle scars on your arm. Do you understand that we envy what we think is limitless, restrictionless freedom? But God says, that's not the way it works. The ones I love, I cast boundaries around because the human heart is simply too wicked and irresponsible to be given limitless freedom. You want to take me at my word? Try it. I challenge you for one year. Don't parent your children. Don't parent them. Whatever the heck they want to do, just go, yes, yes, go ahead. Gummy bears and ice cream for breakfast? Go ahead. You want to look at that place? Go ahead. Take the- Turn on that channel. Watch that movie. It's just drugs. Go ahead, son. It'll make you feel... Go- Try not giving them any restrictions, and you tell me, will they win the Nobel Prize? Will you be proud of them walking around with your name? And yet that seems to be what we think we want from God. We often say in our hearts, I wish you'd just leave me alone. Enough discipline already. I'm getting a little sick of the constant working on my character. When do I get to rest from this ceaseless campaign to make me like Christ? What am I really saying when I say that? Can't you just give me a break so I can act like a sinner for a while? I'm much more comfortable when I don't have to feel bad about the sin I commit. It's much better for me when I'm not pressed down with the responsibilities and obligations of this life. But God says, that's not the way I look at you. When I look at you, I see my children. And look what it says here. We all had earthly fathers who disciplined us. But I want you to, I'm going to skip ahead to this part. Look what it says here. Uh, where, where is it? Our fathers, verse 10, disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good. What it says is, our parents had us for maybe 18 years. They did their best, but let's face it, our parents could only parent us as well as they were able to be human beings themselves. And tell me, did your parents always get it right? Raise your hand. I know some of you, your parents are sitting right here. <laughs> so you can just raise your hand and lie. That's all right. I'll give you a pass. Raise your hand if your parents never made any mistakes, that everything they taught you directly and indirectly, was good and virtuous and awesome. They never once crossed the line, never made a mistake, never allowed their own sin to infect your life. Anyone? Yeah, I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Our earthly fathers had us for a little while, and what it says basically is, hey, look, they did the best that they could. But the truth is, they were just a slob-like one of us. I mean, you know, our parents, God bless them, were just us, a little older. <laughs> How many of you are parents? Raise your hand. Raise your high. Don't be ashamed of your children. <laughs> All right. Now, keep your hands up if you have done everything right. Never struck your child in anger. Never failed to discipline. Always did the right. Keep your hands up. I want to see who's. I, I'm going to put my hand down too. I, it's not true. None of us. Because in the end, we have our kids for a little while, and we do the best we can. And the truth is, many times when the kids turn around to teenage years, we say stuff like this. We go, you know what? The husband and wife are sitting in the room looking at each other, and we have this conversation. I don't know. We might have messed the kid up. (laughs) We didn't know what we're doing, and, like, going to go off to college in a few years. I don't know if we did our jobs right. Sometimes we see things and we say, it might be too late to change that part of their character. It seems so ingrained. They seem so stubborn clinging on to it. And maybe we just didn't do enough. And so sometimes what a frustrated or guilty parent will do is pull away. will say, I don't think I can help you. You're on your own, kid. I'm sorry. I tried my best. But you're leaving me now. I can't influence you anymore. Go with God. Lord, forgive us for unleashing that into the world. Because the truth is, we wonder, did we really know what we're doing? And the answer is a resounding no. You did about as much good as you did damage. You did about as much damage as you did good, right? That's why it's so comforting to say God isn't like us. He's not bound by the limitations we had. So he says, our father's disciplined us, and we still respected him for the halfway job that they were able to do. How much more should we submit to our heavenly father who has no flaws, who has no weakness in his character, who never sleeps or rests, and who will never reach a point where he'll say, I think I broke you. I can't i can't fix you i give up you're beyond repair there's no way we can help god will never say that with you he will be relentless in pursuit of you because he loves you as his children and that's a comforting thought that for the rest of your life god will pursue you so that someday you are formed like christ and will share in his holiness in the most fundamental character trait he has, you will be like him. I'm just going to end with this. I'm going to skip the little illustration. You know this saying, no pain, no gain. Okay. There's a fish story in there that I'm going to skip. It's a good fish story too, but someday. (laughs) I'll, I'll save the slides and work into another sermon, right? Look what it says. No discipline Seems pleasant at the time, duh. Next time you're sitting with someone, you go, "This is really hard." <laughs> okay, what you think? Discipline supposed to feel happy and good? Awesome! It's it never feels good. It's not supposed to feel good. Something would be really wrong with you if you enjoyed the discipline. Thank you, sir. May I have another? That's not right. That's not the way you're supposed to be. You're supposed to not enjoy discipline, but if you submit to it, if you let it do its work, something good will actually come out of the other side. See, the problem with a lot of kids, they do two things. They either make light of the discipline or they despair. That's what it said back in verse 5. My son, don't, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. There's always that kid who's like, doesn't hurt me. Yeah, well, I was going to go to my room anyway. You know, like a little sarcastic. Like they make light of the discipline. They waste the opportunity, so they're sitting there just enduring the spanking, enduring the yelling, the scolding. You can see it on their face. You're you're giving them the the most amazing parental speech, and they're just like, all right, are you done talking? Can I go back to my homework now? You're like, oh, what a waste that was. You had an opportunity to actually learn, but instead you just sat there, numbed your heart, and endured me. Good job. We're going to be here again next week, I can assure you of that because you have learned nothing, you have changed nothing, you will screw up the same way again because you squandered the discipline. You made light of it. You just endured it. Let me just get through this. And as a result, you will walk through that same road again and again and again until one day, in wisdom, you submit to the discipline and let God finish the work in you that he tried to send the discipline for in the first place. It's amazing to me how stubborn some people's hearts are. You try to show them a counter perspective, like, yeah, I know, but I still like my way of thinking about it. Even though your way stinks, even though your way hasn't worked for you one lick, you won't let go of it. Nah, I like my way of thinking about it better. That's fine. You must like reruns because we'll have this same conversation a thousand times because you seem to love broken stuff. You seem to be in love with your dysfunction. And you make light of the discipline by either just ignoring it, making light of it, dismissing it, enduring it, or you let it break you. You let it make you spiral into self-pity and depression. Those are both wrong responses to discipline. The right response is, God, I did not do anything to deserve this, but you must be doing something. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. What am I supposed to to change, to learn, so that I I will submit to this? And let, its, let this discipline do its work on me. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. But listen, not only is it not pleasant, it will be painful. But later on, we hate those words, don't we, in the United States? Later on, not now, not a second from now, not five minutes, but later, it will produce what? A harvest. Good word. It will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. Could you use more of that in your life? Huh? I mean, real righteousness, not grudging obedience, but like you like what is righteous. Could you use a little more peace in your life, in your relationships, in your heart, in your job? Some people, they're like pig pen on on the peanuts. There's this cloud of dirt always following them. And they think that the universe has conspired against them when that's not really what it is. What it really is, is all their lives, God has lovingly tried to discipline and they've never submitted fully to it. They walk away from every discipline clinging to their old way of thinking. And they wonder why life works for everyone else, just not for me. But if you submit to the Lord's discipline, the promise in God's word is it will produce righteousness and peace in your life. Not maybe. It's not like a lottery ticket. You might could win. You will get this if you submit. It's as good as certain. And so therefore, with this great promise in view, I'll end with these words. Strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Don't give up. Don't you dare give up. Don't give up on yourself. Don't give up on God. And don't squander his opportunities of disciplining your spirit. Submit to them. Be shaped by them. And with each discipline, you will grow more Christ-like, more holy, more righteous, and more at peace. Life will be as it's meant to be. This is the promise of God for us. you bow with me to pray? Look, when I preach a message like this, please understand that I'm not just me talking to all of you. I see so much of this stubbornness and refusal to submit in my life. That's why I'm able to speak to it so passionately. I'm not yelling at any of you. (laughs) Believe me. I look in the mirror, and I realize how many times I've had to go down the same road with God. My prayer for me, and I hope for you, is that one of these days, I will wise up and submit. The Bible says, like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. I don't want to have to go back to that puddle again and again. Why? So our prayer can be, God, when you chasten me, when you discipline me, Don't let me miss it. Don't let me waste it. Change me through it. Really, change me. Why don't we spend a few minutes just praying that in our own way to God? Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church